The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hiya. And welcome to the Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Margarita. And I'm Dan. And today we've got The Shadow of Spirituality, featuring award-winning professor at the University of Toronto, John Verveke, professor at the Open University, Sophie Grace Chappelle, and founder of the Skeptic Society, Michael Shermer. This debate took place in 2023 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So Dan, tell us a bit about this debate. Well, this debate questions whether New Age spirituality could possibly be leading us astray. Firstly, it covers the difference between the New Age of spirituality, that is your crystals, energies and vibrations, with the old age of legacy religion. Um, And then they bring in some really tasteful points on Wittgenstein and what he thought about spirituality too. Interesting, interesting. I can't wait. Now, remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now it's time to welcome our host, Barry C. Smith, to Philosophy for Our Times. Established religion has been on the decline in the West for more than a century. But of those who claim not to be religious, 40% believe in some form of the supernatural. From horoscopes to TikTok psychics, We see these alternatives either as harmless New Age fantasies, but a recent UCL study has found that people who were not religious but had a spiritual understanding of life were 77% more likely to be dependent on drugs, 72% more likely to suffer from a phobia, and 50% more likely to have generalized anxiety. Are New Age spiritual beliefs leading us into a post-Enlightenment dark age? Or was Wittgenstein right when he said the facts of the world are not the end of the matter? And Deleuze, was he right when he said we should bring something incomprehensible into the world? And he certainly tried hard at that, I think. Um, Should we see spirituality and mysticism as a dangerous spiral to dystopia or a positive outcome that challenges the dominance of scientific truth. Now, with me to discuss this very distinguished panel of speakers is John Vervaki, who is a trailblazing psychologist and cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto, known for his popular YouTube series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Michael Shermer, who is the founder of the Skeptic Society and also produces this Skeptic magazine which uh, I I encourage you to have a look at. He's also the author of Conspiracies, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. 
And then Sophie Grace Chapel, who is a professor of philosophy at the Open University and the author of Epiphanies and Ethics of Experience. So highly relevant for this discussion. I'm going to invite each of our speakers to set out their position on this topic. And the, the, the exam question for each of them is, are the new age spiritual beliefs leading us into a post-enlightenment dark age? So John Vervaki, if we could start with you, please. So um, I think uh, I'm going to do what an academic would do. I'm going to challenge the question um, in that um, I think the New Age spirituality is a confused phenomena. I think there is in, in, in it um, a lot of things going wrong. Um, I, I think what's going wrong is people are trying to deal with anomalous spiritual mystical experiences and we know that on average about 40% of the population has these or they're hungry for meaning in a way I've tried to articulate um, or they're looking for transformation or they're looking for belonging and I would make a case that um, these all have a proper role in a well-lived human life uh, but I think they're trying to do it in um, a moribund two worlds mythology that we sort of inherited from the axial age that is not consonant with the kind of picture that uh, the scientific worldview is giving us. That often leads them into pseudoscience as they try often in a very uh, sloppy way to integrate those two together. I think they also move towards a kind of decadent romanticism in which they try to find uh, alternative faculties that they believe give them spe special access to reality as sort of my intuition or my imagination is a magical faculty. And I think these are all very uh, confused projects, um, and they're part of the way in which rationality and spirituality have been sort of fundamentally severed uh, uh, post the Enlightenment. Um, now, I think that's the negative. I think the, the positive in, in uh, the New Age spiritualities is that they do represent that people are seeking places in which they can practice in a way that'll bring them uh, transformations so that they have a proper home for something like the cultivation of wisdom and virtue. But as I said, this is often confused with um, a sort of a, an arcane or esoteric knowledge project. Um, it's often confused uh, with sort of weird uh, uh, subcultural political commitments. So I think there's a lot of confusion in this confused phenomenon. Um, so I would say that my overall position is the New Age movement is a symptom of much deeper, profounder confusions that if we don't address, um, things are going to get much worse in general for us as a culture. Thank you. Admirably brief. Michael Schremer. Oh, okay. Well, roughly speaking, this is called the replacement hypothesis. Not to be confused with the, the great replacement conspiracy theory. Replacement hypothesis is that if the rise of the nuns continues, that is, people that tick the box for no religious affiliation, uh, roughly speaking, in America, it's about 25%, maybe 33% of millennials, probably half of Gen Zers. So it's on the way to uh, sort of falling into disuse. It will need to be replaced by something. Uh, and, and therefore, there's many candidates. You know, wokeism is a religion. Anti-racism is a religion. Progressivism is a religion. Everybody's got their X as a religion which I think is a little too broad because religion has specific meanings, usually having something to do with the supernatural. So therefore, maybe some of these new age beliefs are part of that. Um, but this is a little bit like saying, 
Um, because humans have a sexual drive, we, we have to have Playboy mansions, and if we don't have those, now what are we gonna do? Well, okay. Uh, you know, this is not really, uh, I think, uh, overgeneralizing how people fulfill their needs. There's a lot of ways to fulfill spirituality, the sense of awe and wonder about your place in the cosmos. Uh, I'm an atheist, and uh, I still get great um, fulfillment and, and, and a sense of spirituality when I go into a cathedral because they're designed to invoke that. In the same way, I, I feel the same way when I visit uh, astronomical domes, great big, huge astronomy domes with those telescopes, I feel the same sense as I go into a cathedral. Uh, and you can get this through lots of different um, uh, human modalities. There's a lot of research on this. Um, to evoke a sense of awe and wonder, just do anything to get yourself out of yourself. Go outside, walk barefoot, go on a hike, go dancing, go meditating. You know, there's lots and lots of different ways to kind of invoke a sense of spirituality and awe. Religion kind of had a monopoly on the on the job for a while, and that's fallen into disuse. And, and most of us atheists think that's not such a bad thing for other reasons. Uh, but does it have to be replaced by something? Not really specifically. I think just a deeper understanding of what it is we need to do uh, to fulfill whatever it is religion was doing. One of which is providing community and friendship and a sense of belonging to other uh, groups. And that's what it does pretty well. So, you know, there's studies, these research studies, you quoted the one that sounded pretty negative, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, religious people live longer, they're healthier, and so on. But there's nothing magical about that. It's not like the deity reaches in uh, to stir the particles in your body so you'll live longer. Um, it's that people that are religious tend to have more community. It's the community or having somebody that loves you or that you love, having close friends, having meaningful work and, and a purpose and volunteering for a nonprofit, something like this. These are the things that make people feel good about themselves. They're more likely to go to the doctor to stay healthy for their family and friends and community that they care about and they care about them. That's the actual pragmatic implications of being religious. Not having religion doesn't mean you can't have those things. There's just lots of other ways to get it. Thank you. So, so we've got a, a view that both of you are signing up for that we're seeking or searching for something. And I think, John, your, your view is that uh, we're seeking in some of the wrong places. Yes. And that that, that might be a symptom of something else. And, and Michael is suggesting religion was doing a good job, at least at the level of a practice that brought about community. But without that or with that on decline, maybe for reasons of doubting the, the ideology or the, 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 the theism, he's got strong recommendations about what we should do. So. Those are two very nicely established positions, and Sophie Grace Chapel, I now want to hear where you're going to go with this. Well, um, cards on the table. I'm a Christian. I'm a member of the Episcopalian Church, which is what we have in Scotland instead of the Anglican Church, and much better. Um, <laughs> Scots always say that. Um, there's a line in Marx which is often quoted or misquoted. Um, religion comes, Marx says, from the sigh of the oppressed, the suffering of, of the downtrodden people. Religion, Marx said, is the opiate of the people. It's their way of escaping from unbearable realities that they find themselves trapped in. Now, it seems to me that um, old age spirituality of the kind that I, I guess I represent as a Christian has in some sense got too tied in to the kind of systems of economics and production 
that Marx was targeting when he said those famous things. People find themselves in a reality which is unbearable because it's been mechanized. It's become completely dominated by the running of engines, which make for lives within this system, which are just like, to use an image I was using earlier, just like hamsters on a wheel. You're running and getting nowhere. You're trapped in meaningless labor. You're trapped in a life which doesn't mean anything to you. And the church is standing in the background saying, hooray for this. The church is in the background on the side of the mill owners. By this point, you can probably tell that I grew up in Lancashire, where we were <laughs> dominated by the Industrial Revolution because Lancashire kind of invented it. Before I was Scottish, I was Lancastrian. Um, so what we have today is a situation where a lot of us find that we're trapped in meaningless work, in lives that society wants to define as pretty much making us just cogs in a machine. Vivid illustration of this in recent political discourse, the pandemic's over, get back to your offices, say the politicians. You're, I think the pandemic was a huge opportunity for us to rethink the way we do things. Did you know that in London, every year, a million people commute, and the amount of time that people spend commuting, um, on average, is an hour a day. And if you do the sums, it turns out that means every year in London, 500 human lifetimes are wasted on commuting. The pandemic gave us a chance to change that, but the powers that be don't want to change it. And too often, old age spirituality is lined up with those powers and is cheering on those powers. No wonder then that people want to find ways of expressing their longing for the transcendent that stand outside those political structures and that stand away from the church or any other kind of religion, which seems to be just there to reinforce and buttress those structures. I don't think it's at all surprising, given what I think is a kind of historic betrayal, too often, not always, but too often, by the established church of people who have needs which are just not being met within the kind of society that we live in. I think it's far from surprising that people are looking for new ways to satisfy their longing for the transcendent. Thank you. Uh that's very admirably expressed, and I want to move to the first of our themes, especially drawing something of a similarity and difference between you and John on this. So, I mean, you're, you're critical of the established church and not doing the right thing when meeting the sigh of the oppressed. And instead of turning to the, the dispossessed, the cheated of sunlight and lifting them up, it's the sense of helping them, consoling them with their misery. But at the same time, you still think there's a role for Christianity of some form, I take it. Well, that's an open conversation. I'm a Christian myself, but I'm, you know, if people want to say, well, actually, you sh Sophie, you should be this kind of religious person, or, or maybe no kind of religious person at all, you should yeah. get your sense of the transcendent <laughs> outside religion. My response to that is, okay, let's talk. Let's Good. have that conversation. Well, let's, let's have that conversation now, because I'm, I'm going to... Uh, uh, try to bring out the contrast with, uh, with John, because John is doubtful about uh, religion even working on a pragmatic level, because you think it tends to divide us into an idea of different realms, different uh, spheres, where there's something that's not accommodated in the world, something that lies outside it, which is, I think I heard in your first remark, that's troubling you. And, and we're going to probe that by looking at 
that sense that the world doesn't, the world is not enough, that when we look at it, we're not fully contented. Now, does that lead us to think of something transcendent which has to lie outside the world, or is, is there a way of finding meaning in the world? And for that reason, not surprisingly, we're going to turn to Wittgenstein and especially the Wittgenstein of the Tractatus. There he is straining to try to say everything that is the case and not more. And at the same time, we find him needing to say something that can't be said and needing to say something that he feels is lacking from just the articulation of all the ways things are. So, Sophie Grace, can you help us by reminding us a little bit of what, what that yearning in Wittgenstein is and what, what the balancing act is that he's trying to do to retain something in the world that answers the spiritual need? Well, at Tractatus 6.4 and following, Wittgenstein famously says that if there is any value, then it does not lie within the world because the world is just the totality of facts, as he says right at the beginning of the Tractatus. And the form of the proposition, he says elsewhere in the Tractatus, is this is how things stand. This is how things are. And all the facts that you can find in the world are just contingent. And there's no particular meaning in any of those facts. The facts are just the way things are. They could have been some other way. None of them has any intrinsic meaning because for Wittgenstein, for things to have intrinsic meaning, they would have to be in some deep sense necessary. And necessities for Wittgenstein are unspeakable. They lie beyond the world. They're ineffable. That's why the Tractatus ends. Um, section seven of the Tractatus, the, the first six sections, consist of all sorts of um, logical governs, lots of ins and outs, lots of complications, critiques of Ramsey and uh, of Frege and of Russell, all kinds of hardcore logic, techie stuff going on in the middle. But Wittgenstein says in the preface to the Tractatus, this is a book about value. And the most important part of this book is the part that cannot be written. And that is the part about value. So the last words of the Tractatus very famously are, what we cannot speak of, we must pass over in silence. And what Wittgenstein is saying there, I think actually fits with a history of philosophy where there had been some very highfalutin attempts in writers like Bradley and um, other 19th century idealists to see value following Hegel as something that the world was leading us towards and that was intrinsic in the world and that could be brought out as spirit came to realize itself. And there's a revolution in Cambridge, philosophical revolution, not a real revolution. It was much more boring than a real revolution, but it was quite exciting if you were a philosopher. So the 19th century approach got overthrown by Russell and Moore and Wittgenstein. And they said, no, the only things we can talk about are the things that actually make sense, the things we can put in propositions. The Tractatus is a book about what you can put into words and also about what you can't put into words. And the tragedy is that everything that matters, you can't say. And if this begins to look a little bit like the kind of anti-capitalist stick I started with, then it should do. Because what you've got on the one hand is a nice machine of facts which churns and churns and produces logical results, but there's no meaning in it. And then the realm of meaning has been forced outside the world altogether by this machine, which just churns out facts. And that is a kind of tragic picture. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go to John to see whether we can pull back a little from the tragedy. And I, I'm, I'm going to maybe try to get him to uh, 
look at another interpretation of that maddening book. <laughs> so, so, as you said, um, if there is value to the world, it's not to be found as another fact in the world, but is there some way in which value still finds a home in the world that we don't reach for something transcendental in another sphere beyond? And that might be an orientation towards the world. Not another fact, but a way of addressing the facts, attending to the facts, a sensitivity to the way they are. And I wonder whether in your opening statement and your mistrust of people looking for something supernatural, there, there's, there's room with this Wittgensteinian notion that somehow or other, yeah, we know all the facts that there are if we could, but there's something about our way of approaching them, our attention to them, or our maybe our acceptance of them, which is going to answer that spiritual need. Yeah, um, I, uh, I was proposing that the distinction between the supernatural and the natural is a kind of reifying of a two-worlds mythology that we inherited from the actual age. And it's been with us so long that we come to think of that as the de default way in which we should try to understand and express people's experience of the sacred. And I'll, I'll use that as neutrally as I possibly can. Something that they find really real that calls them to transformation in some fashion. That, I'm just going right. to put it that We can right. talk about that. Right. But, and what, what, what I see, and I know I'm, I'm not pinning Sophie to being just a, a voice of Wittgenstein. So I'm addressing Wittgenstein, not, not Sophie. Um, I think Wittgenstein, of course, uh, that you can see the Tractatus as being bound up with this project of somehow can we find logic as the third realm uh, between the subjective and the objective. And Russell, of course, is, is in that project, and uh, Frege, too. Um, and I think that project, both in the analytic and the continental tradition, and there's a lot of argument to this, but I think that project has largely collapsed. Um, and a lot of the distinctions that made that project sort of viable um, have, 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 have collapsed. And I think Wittgenstein also was prescient about this uh, because, of course, the investigations represents an alternative reinterpretation. Um, and so I'll, I'll throw another quote out, uh, which also has a mystical sound to it because it puts you into silence but a different way. Even if the lion could speak, we could not understand him. Because what he's pointing to and what I would interpret he is trying to get at in the investigation and his whole theory of use is that there are, are there actually multiple kinds of knowing. There isn't just propositional, there's procedural, there's skills, there's perspectival, what it is like to be in a particular situation. There's participatory, which is knowing by how your identity is taking shape. And these are all interwoven together. And that this has to do with something that is as important as truth, uh, which now I'll say something that is provocative, but is at the core of my career, which is human beings are not concerned with just the truth, they're concerned with relevance. And this is because of uh, very powerful facts about agency in the world. Uh, you can't pay attention to all of the information that's available to you. You can't pay attention to all of the information in long-term memory. All the different sequences of behavior, combinatorially explosive. The, the number of possible moves in even a chess game uh, outnumbers the number of atomic particles in the universe. So one of the projects I've been engaged in at, at the core of AGI is how do you get a system to zero in on relevant information? And this is what you can't get the system to do. Check everything to see if it's relevant. So th that means that human beings are doing this. You're all doing it right now. You're zeroing on, on relevant information. Things are obvious to you. Obviousness is not part of physics. But if you don't have a capacity for finding things obvious, you can't do any problem solving. You can't do any knowledge generation. So th this finding things relevant, this is what he means about the lion. The lion 
has a different form of life. It's a different biological organism. So what it finds relevant and salient is going to be di very different from us. So even if it speaks English correctly, all, there might be you know, truth content there, but we won't get the relevance realization of the lion. And we won't be able to connect to the world the way the lion does. And I think that what people are often seeking when they're seeking belonging and meaning, and I, this is what the research shows, we, we tend to think of it as purpose. Um, purpose is only one of the four dimensions, right? There's purpose, there's coherence, um, there's significance, and there ma there's mattering. And mattering seems to be the one that matters most, that pun is intended, uh, which is people want to feel that they're connected to something that has a reality and a, a value beyond their own egocentric existence and perspective. Um, Susan Wolf did some excellent work on this. And I think that is because we are not just seeking truth, we are seeking to be connected to it in a relevance-realizing way. And um, I think what people are therefore looking for are not proposi just propositions or primarily propositions. And I, I'm gonna point, I'll, I'll do quick two empirical studies. Very, oh. one empirical study. Okay, one empirical study. <laughs> Okay, so um, we're, we're actually doing experiments on awe. I'm working with Jennifer Steller, Michelle Ferrari, Jensen Kim, and we're using the overview effect to induce awe. The idea is awe opens you up, it makes you accommodate. Could you just say what the overview effect is? The overview effect is a, like I, I make, is a, you're, you're looking over like a, a large vista. You can be looking at the earth from space, um, you can be looking over a canyon, Right? And you can, you can improve the effect with certain kinds of music, et cetera. So you can reliably do so. And so the, I, I thought that if awe was the thing, we should see markers of cognitive flexibility as people open up their cognition. Awe doesn't do that. Right. That's what we're finding. We're trying all the, awe doesn't do that. There seems to be a missing variable between the awe experience and the proper epistemic relation the awe has to translate into something like epistemic humility and a reverence for something beyond one's own original view in order for it to translate into something transformative for people. I, I can't resist telling you that when uh, he was being filmed in The Greatest Story Ever Told uh, and, and the director said to John Wayne, that was very good, but can you say it with awe, John? He said, Oh, surely that man must be the son of God. <laughs> so, so awe is not enough. I, I get that. Um, but, but, but I'm wondering whether if we can just come back to Sophie, Sophie Grace for a moment. It, you know, when Wittgenstein is invoked, the later Wittgenstein, is there a problem nonetheless of a sort of relativism? Because if we get different language games and we're responsive, that relevance is responsive to people's needs, perceptions, and interests. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether there's a, a real conviction that they are all going to line up for all of us in exactly the same way. Well, I think with the later Wittgenstein, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a heterodox interpreter of Wittgenstein, by the way. Some people think Wittgenstein was always saying the same thing all the way through his career. I think, if anything, the opposite of that. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what happens is that there's not just um, a flirting with relativism, there's an unabashed um, openness to the possibility of relativism. And there are a number of ways which you can fight back about that. And the lion that we could not understand if it could speak is one of the ways. We just recognize that some other beings um, perhaps have completely different lives from us. But the fundamental move, I think, that gets the later Wittgenstein out of the early Wittgenstein is at the beginning of the philosophical investigations where Wittgenstein comes back to this question that Tractatus is all about. What is simplicity? What is it for something to be 
a simple entity, a basic building block of existence. And Wittgenstein's answer to that in the Tractatus is logical atoms, whatever those are. And Wittgenstein admits that he doesn't know. But there must be something that is the logical atom, he says. In the later Wittgenstein, in the investigations, he says, well, what do you mean by simple? What do you mean by fundamental? Fundamental for what purpose? And it's that question, I think, that launches him into the exploration of the possible variety, indefinite variety, of forms of life that the uh, philosophical investigations is all about. Thank you. We're going to move on to the second of our themes, and I want to bring Michael in here in particular. Um, so we're wondering whether the, the New Age spirituality is a step towards a dystopian dark age, or whether people just feel there isn't enough to have a very good science and a very good explanation of what's going on around them. I mean, you know, you wanted to give us exercises we could do, you know, ways in which we could be very moved and impressed by the advances in science, by some of the most spectacular uh, discoveries. But is there going to be something which nevertheless is left out? In other words, if there was something that could be explained, is it going to fail to scratch that itch which our other two panelists think we're always seeking? Yeah, are there unknown unknowns? Yeah. Well, how would yeah. I know if, <laughs> if I knew? Okay. You know, I think I'll quote the great uh, philosopher Douglas Adams. <laughs> you know, isn't it enough that the garden is beautiful? You don't have to believe there's fairies at the bottom of it. You know, why do we have to add the woo-woo stuff? Why do we have to add the supernatural, the paranormal? First of all, there's no reason to believe it exists at all. And if it does, then show us the evidence for it. This is a kind of a scientific way of thinking about these things. Is it true? So, since Sophie Grace uh, said she's a Christian, let me ask you, do you think Jesus actually died, was dead for three days, and came back to life? Literally. Yes. Why would you believe that? Long story. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I used to believe it. I was a born-again Christian for seven years, and I just decided I don't think it ever happened. Now, if somebody says, well, it happened mythically, or it's metaphorically true, uh, Joseph Campbell, Jordan Peterson kind of, this is my pragmatic truth that works for me. I'm not trying to claim it's literally true. All right, I can see some value in that. But I don't want to believe things unless they're actually true. And, and, and unless it's in some other realm, like a political truth, you know, what's the right percentage of immigration in any country? There's no scientific answer to that question. Uh, or, you know, religion has certain truths about it that we can't prove, but they're my truths. Okay. But, but I would accept Jesus as my savior if you could convince me it actually happened. Well, let's let's go. Leave, let's leave let's leave Jesus let's leave Jesus out of it. That's for tomorrow, but not for Saturday. So 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 <laughs> silly too. So we'll we'll because tomorrow's I, Sunday. I right. just, good good yeah. good joke. Thank you. Thank you. I but I want to press you on whether that's the alternative. So we've got things we can explain and we believe are true, or you point to something which you think is is very hard to swallow and hard to accept. What about things which are not thrown up by science alone, but thrown up by, say, philosophy. You know, take the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah. Now, that's not something that we really think the scientists are going to come along and say, here's the answer. Well, scientists do have answers to this question. Uh, there has to be, they talk about uh, something coming from nothing all the time. Photons of light come out of atoms from nothing. 
I don't understand it, but you know, it has to do with quantum physics. Don't they come out of strings? Well, okay, so what's a string? All right. My favorite answer to why is there something rather than nothing is the rabbi who said, you people, even if there were nothing, you'd still be complaining. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, first of all, science is just a branch of philosophy. It's just an empirical way of testing hypotheses. Of course, there's rationality and logic and all that uh, for reasoning your way to certain conclusions. But isn't it, a, isn't it okay to just say, we don't have definitive answers to ultimate questions. What was there before the Big Bang? What time was it before time began? Which is famously, like Stephen Hawking said, what's north of the North Pole? It's a meaningless question. Um, and, and so kicking the can backwards, and you have to start the causal chain somewhere. The theist says, well, we're gonna start it with God, and God is that which does not need to be created. Why can't I say the universe is that which does not need to be created? It always existed in some form. You go, no, 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 that's different. But why stop it at the deity? Why not say, well, where did the deity come from? Oh, no, you can't ask that question. It's this you know, great mystery uh, of which we cannot speak. I don't even know what this means, we can't speak. If, we're not, if we can't even talk about it, then what are we talking about? Okay, so I, I, but I, I, I want to, you, you're trying to give answers, and some of the answers might even be, we go back infinitely with one big bang and a collapse of a universe after another. But, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get at something, I think, underneath that, which actually the joke, which I thought was attributed to Sidney Morgan Besser, but it's a very good joke. You know, even if there, even if there was uh, something, That's the way you still, wouldn't be, you still yeah. wouldn't be satisfied. I think there's something quite deep about that joke because insofar as you're attempting to give us answers, people think, okay, maybe I'll buy that but it's not answering the need I have for feeling that there's something here which I can't quite land, I can't quite bring myself to get hold of. And maybe that it's inexplicable and that it still eats away at you or haunts you is part of what people are moved by here, no? Well, isn't that not the drive behind the scientific quest to understand things? I just gotta know, and we're never gonna get there. There's always gonna be more unknowns, and that's okay. Uh, and, you know, there's a cog cognition problem with uncertainty. It's not comfortable. But why fill the gap with something that may not be true? Why not just say, I don't know what the answer to that is yet. Maybe we'll find it out. Maybe you'll figure it out. You're a grad student. <laughs> you know, something. Or maybe we'll never know. But you know? I'm going to come back to Sophie Grace about this because I think you could say, oh, we never know and I want to, or maybe we'll find it out later. But there's a sort of paradox here, which is if we can find it out, it's not really answering that need for something that, that lies beyond us, which I think you were hinting at earlier on. Um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm I mean, the longer version of my flippant response, long story, the longer version, the more serious version of that is actually another bit of Wittgenstein, where he says, for these facts to be um, of religious significance for you, they would have to occupy a completely different place in your life. And that's why it's a long story, because it's, it doesn't suffice for um, faith in any religion, not just Christianity, but any religion, or indeed any new spirituality. It doesn't suffice for faith in that, that you should believe a set of facts. And in that sense, I don't believe it is about a set of facts. It's about an existential orientation to what you take to be facts, um, which as a matter of sober history may or may not have happened in the historical record. So you are constantly attempting, at least I think if you're sane and critical, you're constantly attempting to keep your mind open and to say, well, let's go on talking. 
you have this very different perspective on religion from me. I would want to say to someone like Michael that a lot of the time you're, you're just pushing at an open door because that's not where, that's not what it's about for me being a Christian. That's not where it comes from. And I imagine for people who embrace new spiritualities, it's not where they're coming from either. It's not about bald facts. I mean, as if, you know, sort of cosmic parking tickets are issued. Look, I've got the parking ticket. Here's the <laughs> proof. Um, it, it, it just doesn't, from the inside of faith, it just doesn't feel that way at all. So does it, does it also have to have some implication for how you live your life and what you're going to do? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, since you brought it up, the, the overview effect. You know, when the Apollo 8 astronauts sort of scrambled, scrambled to their camera and took the picture of Earthrise, they felt changed forever. And, and, and so many astronauts come back and talk about the fragile blue planet and they, they start being environmental campaigners and so on. Is it that it's not just a wow moment, but it actually has to change the course of their way of living, commitments, things that are going to structure their life. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm sort of critical of this idea of trying to dichotomize sort of cognition and affect and separate them from each other. And awe is just an affective thing, and then cognition is about sort of pure knowing. Even in, even in our attempts to give very sort of matter-of-fact explanations, we face these issues of relevance. So if I ask you what caused the sinking of the Titanic, you give me different answers according to what is relevant to you. It was the hitting the iceberg, the fact that the Britain was competing with America, the fact that the British steel had impurities and in that cold water. And what you end up doing, and this is a philosophy of science thing, you end up saying, you know what caused any event? The entire pre previous history of the universe, <laughs> which doesn't explain anything. Yeah. So all of our explanations are choices of relevance, of intelligibility. And then I would say to Michael, I think philosophical questions like why is there something rather than nothing, yes, they have been interpreted as sort of causal questions, but they can also be interpreted as ontological questions, right? Which is, not a, which is a question like, well, what is the relationship between the intelligibility of things and the reality of things? And this is, this is, this is a way in which you know, some philosophers like Heidegger wrestled with this question about why is there something rather than nothing. He wasn't concerned about what's the origin. He was concerned with how is it that meaning and being fit together so that we can live the kinds of life we live. And I think those questions are properly philosophical in that they, answers to those questions are presupposed by science. Science presupposes intelligibility. It presupposes that we can uh, find relevance. It presupposes that we make, uh, uh, that we make judgments of significance. And, and there's two threats to, to that. There's ignorance, we don't know, and that's knowledge addresses that, and we gather evidence for our knowledge. But there's also foolishness. There's ways in which those, the fact that we have to pick out what's relevant and significant, which always means we're ignoring that while we're looking at, this is why you get all the framing effects, right? You get framing effects and you get confirmation bias, right? These, these are all, Every bias is actually a heuristic. That's what the no free lunch theorem is, is basically showing. What I'm saying is, right, people are always prone to self-deception in which that relationship of connectedness to the environment can be severed, can be undermined, can be warped and twisted. And so they, they need ways of intervening below just their beliefs. They need skills. They need traits of character. They need ways of 
uh, connecting with other people. You take a standard reasoning test that everybody reliably fails on, like the waste and selection test, 10% success rate, robustly replicates. You replace it with four people who are allowed to talk to each other, and the success rate goes from 10% to 80%. There's something going on there, right? And there's a lot of machinery that's going on that is not about knowledge overcoming ignorance, it's about wisdom overcoming foolishness. And I think what the functionality of religion was around that wisdom cultivation, and I, and I think because of the Enlightenment, it, it got messed up with, oh, well, we're making special knowledge claims and things like that. So I don't know if you have to uh, pin religion on a quest for the inexplic mm -hmm. inexplicable. Mm -hmm. I think you have to, I think a better term for me is something like, uh, people find aspects of their existence ineffable because skills aren't propositions, uh, virtues aren't propositions, traits aren't propositions. They all they all have different measures of realness, right? And people are seeking that. Yeah. And I don't think you have to pin yeah. this quest for connection to the ineffable to the inexplicable. I, I'm not denying that it has happened, and I'm happy for the skeptical critique of that. Yeah. But I don't think that's a necessity right. for spirituality. That that that's very useful, and it, it's going to connect us to the third theme about whether we might outgrow spirituality, uh, maybe because something else is satisfying us, maybe because we understand now what we should be targeting and not looking for those propositions or appearances in other realm. And, and, and Sophie Grace, I want to- Can I just do one correction? I didn't say yes. don't look for them. I said don't exclusively don't focus. Don't exclusively focus on. Right, that's a very important difference. Important, yeah. And we're all about distinctions because we're doing we're, philosophy. We're, yeah, right. so that's good. Um, but I want, Sophie Grace, I want to bring you to a third part of Wittgenstein, which I think is relevant here, which are the works that he produced in the sort of intermediate phase, and especially his uh, remarks on Fraser's Golden Bough, which is sort of not much read by, by people except Wittgenstein scholars, but there he's concerned with the nature of explanation. And he's asking, what, what do we want from an explanation? What will satisfy mm -hmm. us? And sometimes the answer is, you've got to persuade people there isn't an explanation, even when they really want one. So he's got this very nice remark where he said, to the man who has lost in love, what will help him? An explanation, question mark? Clearly a question to which the answer is no, not an explanation. Mm. How about a girlfriend? Just, <laughs> well, I think, I think, <laughs> or one, one thing at a time. You've got to get over something before you go to the new. But there we go. But, 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 but there are other cases which I think are very relevant here because when people are about to go into um, uh, an epileptic seizure, there's a, a massive storm, neuronal storm, across, across the corpus callosum, and they often speak of a feeling of imminent revelation, mm -hmm. a feeling of I'm, now I'm, I'm going to understand something. And maybe what we have to do in that spirit of Wittgenstein is say, I know it feels like that, but there's no explanation of that feeling of imminent revelation. It's just a neuronal storm. So there's some way in which you know, we talk people off the roof of needing to reach a little beyond themselves by reminding them that what you want from an explanation, sometimes you just won't get. Well, um, there's a lot there. Um, there's a nice saying that philosophers sometimes quote to each other, that the conclusion of an argument is the point in the argument where you stop thinking. And th there can be a certain amount of truth in that. We can sometimes be satisfied with a form of argument which gets us somewhere, and that we think is the end of things. And there's always more. 
There's always more that needs explaining and understanding. But I don't think I want to talk people down off the roof of wanting more. I think I want to give them wingsuits. Right. I mean, there, there are some times where we want more. But again, I, I, we want more. And maybe, maybe it's a deep understanding to want more. There's a great remark, and I want to come to Michael with this. There's a great remark that uh, Wittgenstein has when criticizing Freud. Now, a lot of the criticism of Freud is postulating an unconscious, you know, hidden, hidden elements, you know, what, what, what causal part are they playing? And that's not the criticism that Wittgenstein makes of Freud. Wittgenstein says, you know, when, when we've had a dream and we've woken from it and it haunts us, he thinks, Wittgenstein, uh, Freud's offering you the wrong explanation. He's trying to find something in your past that caused that to be in the dream, whereas what we actually want to know is, why does that haunt us all day? And he, and he says this very nice thing, uh, which is a conceptual answer. He says, what we really want from dreams is to know how they end. <laughs> That's what we want. Now, we're never going to have that, but is there some sense in which we can both content ourselves that the science will tell us there's no explanation to be had here, but we'll get a kind of conceptual understanding of why we're asking those questions, yeah. what we need from them? Yeah, okay, I'll just cite a, a, an empirical study done by Clay Routledge, who you probably know studies mm. meaning and purpose and so forth. Anyway, he did one study where he had theists and atheists, uh, and then um, a, a measure of uh, high versus low need of spirituality. These are just kind of self-report scales. And so people that were theists, oh, and the question was, do you believe in space aliens? That is, are there aliens out there? Have they come here? And the theists whether they were low or high in spirituality, tended to be skeptical of aliens. Uh, the people who were atheists who had a low need of spirituality were equally skeptical of aliens. But atheists who had a high need of spirituality scored much higher on believing that there are aliens out there. Anyway, Clay's conclusion to this, which, which was something like, um, the aliens are filling the void of God. <laughs> something like, a super advanced extraterrestrial intelligence that can do pretty much everything Yahweh can do, uh, that would be the same thing, indistinguishable from God, something like that. All right, but what I want to know is, are there actually aliens out there? Have they actually really come here? Uh, and that's a separate question from what Clay was after, which is what we're talking about here, is why do people believe in anything? If there's no evidence for it, that's when you go into the, well, why do they believe? And we can't define it. We can't talk about it anymore. It has this kind of uh, ephemeral sense to it. Uh, it's either real or it's not. And if it's in some other realm that we'll never know the answer to it, like maybe the hard problem of consciousness or free will or God's existence or why is there something rather than nothing, maybe those are in that other realm. And the search is more fun and interesting. And finding the answer would be like, oh, it's like finding out how the magic trick is done. Uh, oh, that's how they do it? Uh. But I'm, I'm glad you bring up the hard problem of consciousness, because there's something that hasn't escaped all of us about uh, people who are excited by that issue, and indeed by people who are very excited now by technology and AI and, and, and a kind of urge to, to have more technology in their life. Here's some of the things they say. I wonder if I can upload myself onto the cloud so I can be disembodied. I wonder if having replicated myself, I can live forever. And maybe there's a higher intelligence that's actually controlling all of us. Where have we heard these things before? <laughs> so it's very interesting that the tech bros have, as it were, rediscovered some of the same tenets. It is kind of, of a theology. heaven. 
Yeah. Well, you know, you know, if you are a Christian and you believe when you die, you're going to be up there with Jesus. What's up there? Is it your body? Is it your soul? Yep. This is the, I say the same thing to the mind uploading people. What's going up there? You know, you scan your connectome and you upload it to the cloud. You're still here. You know, the point of view self is still right down here. That's just a copy. So do you believe that it's a copy of you up there afterwards or is it actually you and what does that mean? Um, well, I think that what I believe about um, eternal life is that I don't know very much about it, but the hope and the promises there in the faith that I hold. So we'll see. Well, I'm kind of hoping I get to see you. But <laughs> this is getting more and more like tomorrow's subject, <laughs> Sunday subject. I, I wanted to say something yes, else about um, science and explanation. And I think one of the taproots of mysticism, one of the taproots of spirituality, is the inexhaustibility of reality. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is to yeah. say, yeah. there's no end to the depth and the interest and the the enlightenment that we can find in the reality around us, which I don't believe incidentally is divided into the natural and the supernatural. I, I don't really embrace that distinction. Um, so reality is inexhaustible. What runs out is current science, not possible science, not but possible current science. science. Right. There we must end. So will you join me in thanking John Bovaki, Sophie Grace Chapel, and Michael Schoen. Well, that was an interesting talk. Wasn't it? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.